If you have your Bibles, uh, you go ahead and make your way to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Rachel j- just mentioned, page uh, 12 is where you'll find that. So very close to the beginning of, uh, of your Bible. And we're in the middle of this series. Uh, I guess we're in the second half now of uh, looking at Genesis 11 through 25 and considering the life of Abraham. And if you've been with us, you'll notice this. The narrative sometimes zooms way out and sometimes zooms way in on Abraham's life. So last week we were looking at Genesis 17, and there's this 13-year gap that flies by in a sentence between the end of Genesis 16 and the beginning of Genesis 17. But here, now in Genesis 18 and 19, really it recounts, as best as we can tell, one 24-hour period, and really an eventful 24-hour period, in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and their nephew Lot. So it's going to take us a few weeks to get through all of this. We're just going to do the first half of Genesis chapter 18 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and follow along with me. Uh, Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, And gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Open our eyes, God, that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Open our ears, God, that we may hear what you will speak to those who turn to you in their hearts. Open our minds, God, that we may understand what it means to revere you and learn your ways. Open our hearts, God, that we may grasp the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And then open our mouths, God, that we may proclaim the mystery of the gospel and speak of it boldly. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Two things uh, that we will talk about today from this first half of Genesis chapter 18. Hospitality as the welcome of God and hospitality as the venue and vehicle for the promises of God. So hospitality as the welcome of God, hospitality as the venue and vehicle for the promises of God. So first, let's talk about hospitality as the welcome of God. What is hospitality? 
Most likely, you hear that word just in your everyday life, not in the context of a church even necessarily, and it conjures up images of nicely appointed homes, nicely appointed tables, um, friendly people, good food. All of those things can certainly be part of hospitality, uh, but I think it really misses the forest for the trees. Or maybe some of you even work in what's now known as the hospitality industry. You work in hotels, you work in restaurants. And like anything, when we start to apply a word to an industry and we start to use it broadly, the, the range of that word starts to water down the actual meaning of it. What's been really interesting for me personally to read lately is how people in that hospitality industry, uh, the ones who are finding increasing levels of success, they're really trying to reclaim some of the real meaning of what hospitality is. There's a man named Danny Meyer, uh, who's an incredibly successful restaurateur, largely based in New York City. And he attributes his success really not so much to the quality of their food, although critics would say their food is phenomenal as well, but he attributes their success really to the quality of his employees and the way that his employees then create experiences, hospitable environments and experiences for the guests and, and customers that come into the restaurants he owns. And I was particularly fascinated by part of an interview that Danny Meyer did uh, a couple years back. It was a sort of sidetrack to, to the, the line of questions and, and conversations the interviewer was asking. And Danny Meyer said in this kind of sidetrack that so much of the food uh, and so much of the food experiences that he loves and that have shaped him and that have shaped the way that he runs his own restaurants uh, are from places that have a really rich tradition in Catholic history. They're really rooted in Catholicism. So he said, like, Italy is the place that influenced him a lot. France, uh, the American South, places like New Orleans. And Danny Meyer is not a particularly religious man, but in the interview, he's then verbally processing with the, the interviewer, you know, is there something to that? Is there something to this idea that all these places where I appreciate these food, the food and the food experiences have, like, this really rich Catholic tradition and Catholic background? Is it a work ethic? Uh, is it a ritual of putting yourself second? Is it some kind of sense that our greatest joy comes when we give something good away. And I found myself, as I was reading that and hearing him process that, thinking there's absolutely something to that. And actually there's something that's even deeper, because underneath the work ethic, underneath the, the, the idea of putting yourself second or that our greatest joy comes in giving something away, real hospitality is the welcome of God. It's first being welcomed by God ourselves, and then second, because we have been welcomed by God, welcoming others. And this is exactly what's playing out in Abraham's life as we get into Genesis chapter 18. These first eight verses that we just read, they're this incredible display of Abraham and Sarah's hospitality. But if we back up a little bit, barely any time has passed, any time elapses between Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. And so it's not long at all before these men wander into Abraham's camp that Abraham has just received the sign of the covenant. So we've been following this narrative of Abraham's life. God makes this covenant with him to give him a people and a place. And that covenant's been escalating throughout these years. It culminates in Genesis chapter 17 where Abraham receives the covenant sign of circumcision. So here in Genesis 18, in addition to recovering from the soreness of that, because if you think that's brutal for like newborn babies, you can imagine what it would be like for a 99-year-old man to go through a process like that. Beyond being sore and recovering, Abraham has just been and still is currently saturated in the welcome of God. 
God is establishing a, a people for himself, and those people have a sign. And Abraham, receiving that sign, has been welcomed into that newly formed people of God. And so it's that that's fresh on his mind, the marks of it still fresh on his body, that he turns around and displays this, this radical hospitality, this welcome to these strangers. And it's really important to note in this text that initially these are complete strangers to Abraham. So verse 1, where it says the Lord appeared to Abraham, that's the narrator's vantage point. That's the narrator's vantage point reflecting back on this. That's not Abraham or Sarah's vantage point. And so it's not until down in verses 9 and 10 that Abraham starts to perceive that, that it's God who is speaking to him. And yet, though they are complete strangers, Abraham runs out to meet these men. Culturally, to, to greet a stranger, it would be customary for someone like Abraham, the patriarch of a family, to just stand at the entrance of his tent. And only when it was someone of great prominence or great importance would the patriarch of a family like this, I mean, Abraham's an important guy. He's got a big household with servants, a ton of livestock. He's wealthy. Only if it's someone of great prominence and importance would a patriarch run out to greet someone. Abraham does that. He offers them everything that they need, water, foot washing, rest, food. But he goes way beyond what is culturally expected there. It would be customary to offer bread to a, a traveler passing by. And perhaps, again, if it was someone of prominence or importance, you would prepare a lamb or a small goat and give that to your guest as meat. But to prepare bread with what it says there, three seahs of flour, that's six gallons of flour. So for three visitors, that's a lot of bread. It's a lot of bread. And to prepare a calf, those, that, these are lavish gestures. Again, to people who Abraham at this point only knows as strangers. But that is the real beauty of hospitality. Right? It's, it's easy, and maybe you experience the same thing in your own life. I'm sure you do. It's easy to put on a show to, to bring out the good food and use the nice soap and the nice towels in the bathroom and the nice dishes. It's, when, when it's someone that, that's coming over that you perceive as important, it's easy to put on a show like that. The beauty of real hospitality is that you and I are welcomed by God purely because of his own generous love for us. And therefore, the beauty of, of our hospitality, when we show hospitality to others, is really when we welcome other people, when we offer the best of what we have, even when they are strangers, even when their opinion or their standing is either unknown to us or of, or of no consequence to us at all. Now, not only does God welcome Abraham, God welcomes us. And we narrate the, the beauty of the realities of that every week when we gather as a people. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus accomplishes our reconciliation with God. And he opens up God's family to people not only of Abraham's descendants, but really to people of every tongue and tribe and nation. So when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in his finished work, we become part of the people of God. And we talked about last week that we receive this sign of entrance in our baptism into God's covenant people. So we have been welcomed by God, and therefore, because we have been welcomed by God, we welcome others. There are, there are a ton of implications, there are a ton of practical outworkings that we could talk about as far as what it looks like to welcome others because we've been welcomed by God. But I want to focus in on just a couple that are really evident in this text. For one, hospitality is about welcoming not only friends 
and not only fellow Christians, but it's about welcoming outsiders and strangers. So Abraham and his descendants, part, part of God's covenant with them is that they are becoming this conduit of God's blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. Which means that for the rest of their history, Abraham and his descendants, they're meant to cross paths with and to engage with and to welcome outsiders. Likewise, when the New Testament picks up on this and applies these same things to the church, it uses the word hospitality, including uh, as a qualification for elders in the church. When, it, when the New Testament does that, it's primarily about how we interact with, how we welcome those that are outside the church, those who are strangers. The author of Hebrews actually picks up on this very account from Genesis 18, and he says in Hebrews chapter 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to others, I'm sorry, to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And then Jesus in Matthew 25, we saw this today in our scripture reading before our time of confession, Jesus says that part of God's judgment, part of God's judgment entails how we treat those who have been deemed by society as the least of these. And he says, I was a stranger to those on his right who he welcomes into his kingdom. He says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So this is not at all to downplay in any way the importance of welcoming fellow believers and welcoming friends. But there's a different word that's often used for that in the New Testament. It's the word that's often translated fellowship in English. And that's the love that we have for one another as God's people. So both of these things are critically important for us as Christians. And we need to grow in both of those. But if I, as I step back and just from knowing you and anecdotally and knowing my own life, I think a lot of us at Liberty Church are way better at the fellowship piece than we are at the hospitality piece. And I can understand that. Personally, that's my bent too. I feel more gifted. Uh, I feel uh, like, like fellowship, with people, spending time with friends and, and other Christians is more kind of in my wheelhouse, more what I'm naturally good at. But together, you and I need to start seeing this really as a gospel issue and not just a matter of our gifts or of our preferences. Because the gospel, right, the, the very substance of Jesus' life and work that is our salvation is that it's not about God welcoming those who are already near and who are already friends. It's about God welcoming strangers as friends. Even more so, it's about God welcoming those who were enemies and through the work of Christ, making them friends. So pursue hospitality. Open your lives. Open your homes. And not only to those people who are already friends, but to those who are strangers to you. Maybe that starts with, with coworkers or neighbors that you don't really interact with at all. Maybe that starts with people that you wish you didn't have to interact with. You just feel like you have nothing in common with them. Maybe that also means getting involved with something like refugee ministry here in our region. Because certainly there are massive implications about God's welcome for us with how we view and treat those who are refugees in our society. And regardless of what you believe politically and policy-wise about globalism, nationalism, those kinds of things, for people who already live here in our region, gospel consistency demands that we welcome strangers and outsiders into our lives. One other practical implication here. We must learn to see hospitality not as an inconvenience, but as God's intended way of life. So our, our culture, and actually let's, let's scrap that for a second, more honestly ourselves, you and I, we, are, we have this completely reversed. 
So for example, if a, if a stranger were to come to your home tonight during dinner, how would you react and respond to that stranger? And not just externally, because most of you are nice and polite, decent people. Not all of you, but most of you. <laughs> how would you respond internally? W- would you see that stranger showing up at your door as an inconvenience, or would you see it as an opportunity to embody the very welcome of God? And, and stay with me. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying here. It really is important to have times with just your spouse, with just your family, with just your friends. It, it's important at times to say no to strangers. But my point is, are we ever perceiving opportunities to welcome strangers really as God's intended way of life? Or whenever that happens to us, does it always feel like an interruption and an inconvenience? Abraham here offers a a lavish form of hospitality. And his rationale for it is really simple, and it's in verse 5. He says simply, since you've come. Since you've come. So we get the sense this is not an inconvenience for Abraham at all that it's actually tied to something deep within the purpose of his life. Hey, you came, this is what I do when strangers come. He has like a, a pleasure in it almost. And notice also there's a distinct change of pace when the strangers arrive. The most recurring word in this scene is quick or quickly. Abraham runs to meet them. He goes quickly to Sarah to have her make the bread quickly. And he runs to the young man and tells him to prepare the calf, and he prepares it quickly. So Abraham hustles. He hurries to be hospitable. And again, most of us in the room have this completely reversed, in that we are always hurrying, that our entire lives is one big hurry. So when a visitor or a stranger comes, it always feels like an unwelcome intrusion into our hurried chaos. But hospitality, as the welcome of God, actually means that our more hurried pace comes when we have the opportunity to welcome strangers. It means that we don't see hospitality as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity to love and to serve well. This is why we have the homes that we have. This is why we have the food that we have. Not the only reason, but one of them. There's something beautiful, there's something countercultural about a life that is available to hurry for strangers and for outsiders rather than being maxed out with hurry from everything else. And, and that might seem for you, as it does for me, like practically impossible to get there. You look at your life and your calendar, like how is that possible? So I'm not saying that tomorrow you start by canceling everything and sitting on your porch for 10 hours and just hoping that a stranger arrives in the horizon. I am saying make space in your life for strangers. And make space in your life so that you can hurry, so that you've got something left in the tank to hustle to show hospitality when those opportunities present themselves. Because in God's design, hospitality, it's not an inconvenience. It really is an intended way of life. It's because it embodies the very welcome of God that we welcome others. So we've talked about hospitality as the welcome of God. Second, Let's consider hospitality as a venue and a vehicle for the promises of God. First and foremost, because it does embody the welcome of God, hospitality has value in and of itself. And I think we tend to sometimes only see it as a means to something else. There's value in hospitality in and of itself because of what it is. But in addition to that, it is one of the most powerful means of people coming to know and to believe in the promises of God. So think about this. Before Abraham's encounter... Here, before this scene in Genesis 18, God has already 
been speaking to Abraham. This is not the first time he shows up and speaks to him. He's appeared to him in visions. He's appeared to him directly. But here, there's something different about the appearance in that it's only after arriving as a stranger, it's only after receiving the hospitality from Abraham and Sarah that one of these strangers opens his mouth and reveals himself to be God and speaking the very words of God. And really, from here on out, throughout the history of the people of God, hospitality becomes a primary venue in which the promises of God are proclaimed and are understood and are believed. So think about how much Scripture talks about feasts and talks about food. Think about how much of the law, if you've ever been able to make your way through books like Leviticus, talks about how we posture ourselves toward the alien and toward the stranger, toward those outside the family. Think about how many times in the Gospels, Jesus' life and ministry, how, how, much of the, how many of those scenes happen over a meal or in someone's home. So it's not the only way that people come to know the promises of God or come to faith. It's not the only way that God is known. But if we stand back and we take into account the entire narrative of Scripture, hospitality is everywhere. And for Sarah, hospitality creates a venue in which she hears that she will be the mother of Isaac. Judging by her reaction, she's apparently hearing that here for the first time. That's interesting because God promised that Abraham was going to be the mother of nations and kings back in Genesis 17, and evidently Abraham didn't consider that important enough information to pass along. Husbands have been following in Abraham's footsteps ever since that day. Uh, there's at least once or twice a week I forget to tell my wife something that's important. Uh, I like to think that I've, if it were this important, I would found a way to, to tell her that. I, I've also overestimated myself before, so we don't know. Sarah responds here by laughing. And I'm sure as you could, as you could tell as we read this account, it's not a particularly faith-filled response when God makes a promise to you to laugh. But it's an honest response. It's an honest response. Her life has been hard, and we've seen that already. She's been unable to have children in her younger years. And now at age 90, she's past menopause. So having children for Sarah, it's a biological impossibility. And Abraham, too, is old. So when Sarah asks herself, shall I have pleasure? The most straightforward way for us to read that is that she and Abraham have not been having much sex in their advanced years. So she stands back from this and she goes, well, it's biologically impossible. And Abraham and I, in our age, we've not been physically intimate much or at all. All she can muster is a quiet laugh to herself. And we might expect especially if we're familiar with other accounts in Scripture where, where someone responds by doubt or something, the, the kind of rebukes that come, we might expect a really strong rebuke to come from God. But instead, with this backdrop of hospitality that's just been laid out, with this backdrop, this instead becomes a moment where God offers what one scholar refers to as a restorative rebuke. Restorative rebuke. Listen to what this scholar Gordon Wenham says about this. She laughed not out of cocky arrogance, but because a life of long disappointment had taught her not to clutch at straws. Hopelessness, not pride, underlays her belief. Her self-restraint and not openly expressing her doubts and the sadness behind them go far to explain the gentleness of the divine rebuke. See, what, what Sarah needs in this moment is assurance that nothing is impossible with God. She needs to hear 
that God is going to bring life from what is reproductively dead. She needs to hear that God is going to transform the laughter of her unbelief to the laughter of joy. And the name Isaac actually means he laughs. So it's no coincidence that the first time Abraham and Sarah hear this promise from God, each responds by laughing. But the beauty of it is this, that even our responses of unbelief become part of the redemptive work God is doing. Even our responses of unbelief become part of the work that God is doing. So the Lord not only rebukes Sarah, you know that awkward way we ended the reading this morning, yes, you did laugh. That's a rebuke. You aren't trusting me, he's saying to her. He's also saying, though, in that very moment, but you will laugh, a laugh of joy. I will bring the son of your laughter. So it's restorative at the very same moment that it's a rebuke. It's an assurance of God's promises to her and to Abraham. Though the specifics are very different, you and I are people, and we live among people who need the restorative rebuke of God. And every human being that ever sets foot on the face of the earth is a complicated, convoluted, complex mixture of two things. They are a glorious image bearer of God with some of that image of God remaining intact and at the very same time a rebellious, truth-suppressing, broken vessel who rejects God and goes his own way. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ will be both incredibly appealing and incredibly offensive to every single person. Like Sarah... People will want to believe it at times, but they'll struggle to believe it. Like Sarah, people will see the beauty of it, and yet they'll struggle to reconcile the beauty of what they see in it with the cost and with the suffering that it will entail as well. So among the means at our disposal as the people of God, few are as powerful, few are as necessary as hospitality. Because hospitality allows the rebukes to come in the context of relationship. Because it is welcoming, because it's embodying the very welcome of God, hospitality helps uphold and affirm and restore that image of God that's still intact in every single person, even as the truths of God rebuke. And we live in a cultural moment where offering any kind of rebuke or any kind of challenge that people don't already want to hear, that is considered hateful, uh, that is considered vengeful, that's considered backward. It's a moment where the culturally acceptable thing to do is to really celebrate everything, to affirm everything, to affirm whatever people ask you to affirm about them and their lives. But we have to be crystal clear about this as the people of God. There is no way to be faithful to the gospel and do that. There's no way to be faithful to the gospel. Because the gospel offends, the gospel rebukes every single person, there's no way to be faithful to the gospel and affirm everything. So our options are these. You know, get, get a bullhorn, Get a blog, some kind of platform, and yell a lot. You could do that. People do that. I would argue the effectiveness of that is pretty minimal and only diminishing. And more importantly, it's really hard to be restorative using those kinds of methods. It's really hard to demonstrate a genuine love and care in that way. So the other option is this. Open your life. Open your schedule. Open your home and use hospitality as this venue, as this vehicle in which people can hear the promises of God and the rebuke of God in an environment that actually feels welcoming, that actually feels restorative. It's hard work to do that, but it's so, much, so important that as the people of God in our day, we do that hard work to actually help people feel welcome and not just say that they are welcomed.
the increasingly prevalent cultural narrative is that Christians who hold to a historic orthodox view of, of things, that they are hateful. But what I would say is, to the degree that you and I live out this kind of life as hospitable people, that our lives and our homes being open, to the degree that we do that, that throws a wrench in the gears of that narrative. Right? When your home's open, when your life is open, when people experience a genuine welcome from you, especially then when, when we are those who faithfulness to the gospel demands that we offer some kind of restorative rebuke, that will blow up the categories that exist in the minds of culture at large. People won't know what to do with us. They won't know what to do with us because we're either supposed to be people that celebrate and affirm everything and are welcoming or people who are hateful and backward and, and rebuke for certain things. And what, what the people of God always are in every age are people who are welcoming and open with their lives while seeing the restorative rebuke of God come to bear. So may we live lives where people don't know what to do with us. And this is some of why the early church was so effective. They refused to be shaped by the culture of the Roman Empire. They refused to get in line with morals and practices and sensibilities of that day. But at the very same time, they were those who opened their lives, and not only to each other, not only to other Christians, they opened their lives to the sick and the hurting and the marginalized of the Roman Empire, and people took notice of that. They didn't hold people at arm's length until they became Christians. They offered the welcome of God, and it became a venue. It became a vehicle for people to understand the promises of God. Many came to know and believe in Jesus through that. So may you and I be known for the very same thing in our day. May we welcome others just as we have been welcomed by God. May your life be open to the stranger and the outsider. May you learn to see hospitality as God's intended way of life and not just an inconvenience or an interruption. And because it is this primary venue, this primary vehicle for the promises of God, may God use our hospitality to bring many in our lives, in our region, in our world to know our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.